Welcome to Impacted, the podcast series about research for real change. Each episode showcases researchers here at the University of Sussex and considers the impact their work is having in the world. My name's Suzanne Fisher-Murray. And my name's Will Hood. And today we are featuring Rob Byrne, who is a senior lecturer at the Science Policy Research Unit at the University of Sussex. He's also a co-convener for the energy and climate change domain of the STEP Centre, a research initiative between SPRU and the Institute for Development Studies. My name's Rob Byrne. I would describe myself as a policy analyst these days. The sort of shorthand description of, of what I'm interested in is primarily sustainable energy access. My focus tends to be in East Africa, and so far it has been mainly around solar PV, particularly as that connects with uh, reducing poverty and promoting social justice. You're listening to Impacted. From the University of Sussex. A podcast series about research for real change. So it states in your online bio that studying at Sprue involved some painful rewiring of your head as you tried to change from a quite well-entrenched engineering worldview to one that could engage with sociological perspectives on science and technology. So perhaps you can start off by explaining um, what you mean by this painful rewiring of your head and also explain to an audience that might not know what or who Sprue is? Um, yeah, okay. Uh, well, Sprue, Science Policy Research Unit, uh, is ooh, 60-something years old or something like that. Now, almost by design, it is interdisciplinary. Uh, and if you look around the staff, you'll see economists, historians, natural scientists, engineers, all sorts who've come to so-called science policy uh, through various routes and the sort of focus of its attention is on trying to use different academic approaches to draw from different disciplines to look at the way in which science technology and innovation play out in the world you know they how they influence the world, how the world influences the development of science, technology and innovation. Okay, so Uh, the the practical relationship between the two of them. Yeah, uh, with a view to saying something useful about and for policy in the world, so government policy. uh, For some people, it's about policies in organisations or firms. So it's, it tries to sort of bring ac- academic perspectives that bear on real-world problems and actually come up with, you know, sort of policy recommendations in order to make things better, hopefully. Rob's background was particularly instrumental in providing real-life context for the study of innovation, energy and climate policy. Working for a number of years in Botswana and Tanzania and Africa on various sustainable energy projects helped form his understanding of just how complex the process of adopting new innovations and technology can be. In terms of professional background, it really started in engineering. My first degree was in, it's called engineering design and appropriate technology, essentially a mechanical engineering degree 
but gave you a chance to focus on studying renewable energies and appropriate technologies. Very strong focus on uh, the developing world. That interested me at the time. That was back in early to mid 90s. So it gave me a chance to work in Africa. I worked in Botswana for a year, which was quite formative for me. And I continued with that, worked in Tanzania on solar PV, uh, on the small solar home systems stuff in Tanzania for about three years. After which I came back to the UK and eventually discovered Sprue and got to do a master's and PhD there. And that master's was that, that rewiring experience after 10 years or more working in engineering where you know you can define the problems that you want to solve and very often solve them then coming into social science and realizing that actually it's very difficult to define the problem and even if you do it's very difficult to solve because you find yourself dealing with trying to understand the complexity in the world interesting Uh, so it's a far more messier equation yeah. yeah 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 Um, but also quite uh, enlightening. So I wasn't that long back from my experience in Tanzania. I finished there around October 2000s. And what I'd been trying to do to the colleagues and myself in Tanzania was to, to try and increase the adoption of solar home systems amongst ordinary Tanzanians. So running a small, really tiny project to do this based in Maasai land in northern Tanzania and really struggling. I mean, it was very difficult to understand why it was difficult to make these systems attractive to people. Uh, I was mainly working in rural areas, very poor. Yeah, I mean, a lot of practical constraints and recognizing that if you want to, you wanted to get quite sort of what would otherwise be seen as fairly simple technical things done. Uh, it was always a struggle. So, for example, you just wanted, you wanted to get a frame welded. You'd go to some guys at the side of the street, uh, try and explain what you need. Initially, I would use things like drawings, but they wouldn't necessarily know what I was talking about using drawings. So then you have to kind of explain with real bits of metal and show and talk through what you, what you need. And then you would find that in order to get the job done, you would have to be there with them the whole time. You can just go off, and come back later, and the frame would be done. You'd actually have to go through step by step with them what you want. They would have the skills to actually do the welding and the cutting and so on, but, but you know, you have to kind of explain every step along, along the way uh, what you need. And that kind of experience, you know, shows how difficult it was to, to get things done. Order something from a company and come back two days later and it's ready. It's a very intense, labor-intensive and uh, sort of relationship-intensive process. And then I came to Sprue and you know various courses there during my masters on how you know uh, science, technology, and innovations get adopted in the world. And suddenly there was a whole new range of insights to understand why it had been such a problem in Tanzania. And it was during this time, studying at Sprue, that Rob met David Ockwell, who is a professor of geography at the University of Sussex. Interested in similar questions and challenges, 
The two have focused on trying to find answers to the challenging question of how to spur on the adoption of new climate technologies and innovations, and have been publishing papers together now for over 10 years. I think around 2006 uh, is when I met David Ockwell. He came to Sproon just after his PhD, I believe, and was working in the uh, Sussex Energy Group. And David and I got to know each other. We were both interested in science, technology, innovation in developing country contexts. David, in his work for the Energy Group, had started working very closely with policymakers in the UK and got very involved in the UNFCCC process. And along the way, we started to work together in some research projects and have been uh, working pretty closely ever since. Part of this work has been around the concept of the rather complex-sounding socio-technical transitions theory. They're called socio-technical transitions because the adoptions of new technologies involves not just changes in technology, but also changes in consumer behaviour, consumer practices, policies, infrastructure and business models. So, your SPRU research um, yep. and much of the Science Policy Research Unit has focused on socio-technical transitions to climate technologies. That is, technologies that assist in mitigating or adapting to climate change. So we're talking about solar panels or drought-resistant farming technologies. So explain to me what this phrase socio-technical transition means and, and why is it important? Well, starting with transition, I suppose, there's a whole body of literature now, very policy-focused academic literature, uh, called Transitions Theory, which has sort of grown out of recognition that the ways in which we normally practice and the way ways in which technologies are designed, innovations, how we how we make use of science, technology, innovation, is in general highly unsustainable. But it's not just that the technologies, let's say fossil fuel or coal-fired power plants, are unsustainable. It's also all the ways in which we behave, the policies we set who benefits from fossil fuel plants and who loses and so on. All of those things are kind of interdependence. And and those things are, are sort of deeply entwined with the way we live, the sort of classic stories that, that to illustrate uh, those kinds of interdependencies would be out-of-town shopping, where big superstores are possible outside town because we can travel to them and so they cater for particularly for cars uh, plus if you go with a car you can load up with all sorts of stuff so that means you can buy in bulk which is cheaper and so that encourages the stores to get bigger which then encourages more travel to the stores but that requires you know the, the particular kind of road infrastructure and so you know, urban development and the car quite closely intertwined and then the car being designed around a, an internal combustion engine which requires um, you know petrol or diesel which you know is a fossil fuel and then that uh, supports the fossil fuel industry which involves you know drilling and, uh, for more and more oil and, and, and gas and so on all of those things are interconnected in you know they all depend on each other uh, and, and so you get a a huge system 
that is very difficult to change. And of course, there are very powerful interests as a result. There's a lot of profit to be made. So we see that expressed in things like uh, climate change denial. So when you bring all of this stuff together and try and analyze it to understand how those relationships work and how they might be changed, that is in, in this transitions theory literature as a sort of shorthand for indicating all these social, cultural, political, technical elements. We get this idea of socio-technical. So what are the particular challenges of facilitating the transfer of climate-friendly or sustainable technologies to developing countries? Some of it is to do with the what we would call the capabilities um, that are present. So that's you know skills and knowledge. Um, so engineering skills, but also management skills, the abilities of, of companies, organizations, individuals, and so on to actually use, operate, tinker with, develop technologies. I mean, the capability issue is, is severe, and that's still true across many countries in Africa, not all. Every meeting, workshop, that you attend in an African context where we're talking about African development, capacity building is always the need. So that kind of, you know, the technical skills and knowledge to to deal with technologies is, is a severe constraint. But then there's a set of other challenges which are uh, maybe more political. So, for example, one of the narratives, let's say, is to do with at least a a kind of perceived inferior quality to renewable energy technologies. But there's a sort of, you know, a kind of political dimension to that where the perception of the technology influences whether people want it or not, or whether they feel they're being fobbed off with something that is not actually very good. So those ideas, those that sort of those perceptions can be used politically as well. So uh, let's say fossil fuel interests would then play up those kinds of things and say, well, actually, you know, the only way that we're going to develop is with fossil fuels. You know, look at the West; they developed with fossil fuels, and so there's a, a kind of deliberate attempt to play down the effectiveness of the technology as a way of avoiding any change to something that could be more sustainable, climate-friendly, etc. The Clean Development Mechanism, or CDM, defined in Article 12 of the Kyoto Protocol, allows a country committed to reducing their own emissions to implement an emission reduction project in a developing country. The mechanism aims to stimulate sustainable development by letting industrialised or so-called developed countries offset their emissions. But, it seems, not everything has gone according to plan. In simple terms, the idea of the Clean Development Mechanism was uh, to, to try to meet globally the emissions reductions necessary to deal, you know, to mitigate climate change. Uh, and the mechanism itself um, allowed the... Industrialized countries, the sort of rich nations of the world, to be able to change slowly, 
those countries had their particular commitments to reduce emissions, but they could reduce their emissions by paying for the avoidance of emissions elsewhere in developing countries. And so the idea of the, the CDM was that, in effect, rich countries would be subsidising the finance of clean technologies in developing countries and were, would therefore be able to offset their own uh, emissions. And the developing countries would benefit by getting this extra finance to uh, implement, install and implement clean technologies so they would be getting a development benefit. So that was the idea, multi-billion dollar financing um, mechanism to achieve what was described at the time of its agreement as a, as a win-win outcome. Our argument based on, as it were, our training through these kind of science, technology, innovation ideas is that the big problem with the CDM is that it only sees the challenge in terms of financing clean technology and doesn't really recognize or have anything in place to deal with the skills and knowledge uh, and so it kind of expects the skills and knowledge to be there in place to be able, for a country to be able to absorb a new technology investment. But it turns out in practice that that is not so easy. You can go, you know, go to a, a place, install a wind farm, and it'll work for a while. But once it starts to break down, and if the skills and knowledge aren't there to fix the stuff, then you are stuck with wind turbines that aren't generate, generating electricity. And you may need to then fly in someone with the skills and knowledge to be able to, you know, fix the, the wind turbine. So the, the technology will work better if the skills and knowledge are in place. In this paper that you and David published in 2017, it states that China occurred around 60% of total investment. India only got around 11%, and Africa as a whole only 3%. Yeah. So why have some countries been found to benefit from it and others not as much? Because I believe you called this a policy failure due to things being framed wrongly. So perhaps we can dig around a little bit in that. You know, What were the factors that stopped India and Africa from benefiting more from, from that kind of programme? I mean, there's a couple of things going on to explain why China received so much investment through the CDM. One of the factors, at least uh, David and myself argued, was that China does have reasonably strong functioning, what we call innovation system. So that's the, you know, the skills and knowledge. So you know, the wind turbine fails, then. Uh, there's, there is a local company that has the parts and can manufacture the parts um, for those wind turbines. That makes technology investment there, wind farm investment, less risky than it does in Malawi, where um, it's very difficult to find anyone who can put up a wind farm, let alone a local company that manufactures the parts and so on. So in that sense, the innovation system idea helps to explain a lot of why CDM investments went to countries like China. The discrepancy then between China and India, where India also has 
reasonably good innovation systems around these technologies. In that particular, what, what explains that particular difference, I think, is that China worked very hard to make the processes that the CDM imposes on any new investment, to make all of those things relatively easy for investors to, to get through. So they had a kind of one-stop shop approach to it, whereas I think in India it was um, not quite so quite so easy to do. But at Africa, you know, so so many countries in Africa, very challenged innovation systems, very little in place, would mean to an investor, well, that is a very risky investment. Why put a wind farm in Malawi when you have no idea where it's going to work? Why do that when you can go to China and, you know, you know it's going to work? If you like, looking at it through a lens that understands the context means you can see why the CDM failed to invest in Africa. Whereas if you look at it through a lens that only thinks it's about the cost of the technology, then that lens would suggest you can go anywhere. All you need to do is finance the technology, but it doesn't, it doesn't pay attention to the context. Uh, and that's what we mean by the, the poor framing or the wrong framing. Financing technology is part of it, but it is not everything. And the context is very important as well. And understanding that and being able to do something in that context that makes that context more amenable to those kinds of investments is really important. And that's where the CDM spectacularly failed. In your research around the policy failures to adopting climate-friendlier technologies, you've come up with this approach called Climate Relevant Innovation System Builders, or CRIBS for short. Can you tell us about the approach and how you developed the concepts with Professor Dave Ockwell? CRIBS idea is the sense of the next step is, well, okay, if a big reason for, for why policy instruments like CDM fail is that the sort of innovation systems of many of the poorer countries in the world are not functioning well enough to be able to attract CDM-like investments, then the answer uh, must be to strengthen those systems or build new systems if they don't exist. And so then the question is, how do you do it? And the CRIBS approach does come out of academic literature and particularly this kind of transitions literature to try to figure out how to build innovation systems. So that was then drawing on the academic literature but also on our own research. So from four different contexts, China, India, Kenya and Tanzania was a similar kind of uh, innovation system building story around different technologies and using that knowledge and thinking about it in terms of the insights from transitions theory we started then to develop this climate relevant innovation system builder idea and we you know i think it's fair to say we're still in the process of developing that idea it's not it's not fully formed you have this impact which is happening with the Cribs policy on the global climate policy stage. But I believe there's also a significant adoption of this by the African Union. Perhaps you can tell me a little about that. Yeah, I 
I can only tell you second-hand, really, on that one. In this case, the African Centre for Technology Studies, which is a sort of similar organisation to ATPS, but a stronger focus on Kenya, but also a, a larger group of people, but still very interested in influencing policy. And so we, we worked with ATPS uh, initially in Kenya, uh, and maintain a relationship with them. But we also worked with ACTS uh, and uh, worked particularly on the impact uh, side of things with ACTS uh, in recent years. And a colleague of ours there who heads the kind of climate change team, uh, Joannis Atella, he's very interested in these ideas around the innovation system and has taken these ideas up in a, in a very big way he is a real driving force for getting this into the African Union. He's got, I think he's very well connected there and works very hard on trying to achieve policy influence around climate change, drawing on uh, insights around science, technology and innovation studies. Uh, and I think uh, he's, him and his team have been much more influential really in getting this, like the Cribs approach, you know, it, on the radar of, of African Union and other and, and African governments. The climate-relevant innovation system builders, or CRIBS approach, has had real policy impact. At the global level, the Green Climate Fund and the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change adopted the approach for improving climate technology. The African Union also adopted it to train international climate policymakers. I've got here that the African Union uh, adopted the CRIBS approach to train international climate policy makers and that they trained 41 African policy makers. No, that was Joannis. We worked together. One of the training events that we did was a two-week training in Kenya. And myself and Joannis were there and, and some of his colleagues. And we, we, with a small group of policymakers from across East Africa. They came with proposals, and then what we tried to do was to explain the Cribs idea and then help them to adjust their proposals to incorporate Cribs approach so that their proposals, at least in theory, would be more transformative and thereby give them a better chance of securing money from the Green Climate Fund for these projects in their countries. I think uh, the, the policymakers themselves went away with with a whole lot of new ideas um, and certainly gave us very positive feedback about about these the Cribs ideas and how they would help them. This is the big challenge is once people go back from these events, how they then uh, are able to, you know, in the normal constraints of, of their daily working lives, get these sort of new ideas into practice is, is always going to be a struggle. Tell me a little bit about how the Cribs climate policy has had an effect at the national level. Well, I think the, the clearest is with the Kenyan policymaker who works for the net funds, the National Environment Trust Fund, uh, which is a, an operational arm of, of uh, the Kenyan government. 
and they are one of the organizations in Kenya in the government who can apply to the GCF. They have actually changed their proposal development process to be based around cribs. And I think in this case, we had, as it were, the right person in the training, the person who had the power to bring the cribs approach into the net funds work. Another patron of the cribs policy approach is the World Bank, which is using the cribs approach to research and promote electric cooking solutions. As my understanding is, built through David uh, talking to me about it, is that the World Bank is thinking, well, maybe there is more that needs to be done here, and maybe this cribs approach actually is something that they could work with. The £40 million reference you're talking there is, is around clean cooking technologies and this is current work so david and myself we have a project under uh, this clean cooking program funded by diffid and our project is to to kind of characterize and then understand the innovation systems around electric cooking in east africa which originally we were looking at Kenya, Tanzania, and Rwanda. And our first step, because which we're just sort of coming towards the end of, is to characterize what we're calling the e-cooking, electric cooking, socio-technical innovation systems, as they stand now. And then we will try to do a similar kind of piece of work to the work we did on solar home systems in Kenya. That is to do a sort of historical analysis of how these particular e-cooking you know innovation systems have uh, evolved in kenya and tanzania and the idea is then we can learn from from that analysis to further develop this cribs approach which we're trying to develop it into a general tool that is sensitive to context uh, to develop it into a tool which can actually use to promote clean cooking solutions in Africa and uh, Asia. Wow, that sounds fantastically ambitious and possibly fantastically effective at the same time. Definitely ambitious, but effective, we'll have to wait, <laughs> wait to find out. Okay, well, um, clearly having influence over policy approaches is a complex process so what lessons about trying to have impact do you think that you can draw from from your experience and is there anything that is applicable or that you could pass on to other academics building these kinds of relationships which then become you know two-way processes where you are learning from those you're working with whether they're policymakers or other researchers in contexts whatever it is as well as hopefully providing some kind of set of recommendations, maybe sort of rough tools that they can work with and further develop themselves. Without relationships, it would have been difficult for us to, to have any kind of impact. You know, it, it's, you could publish a paper, somebody might read a paper, they might even understand the paper, they might like it, but the amount of space you get to actually say anything new or, or relevant is quite constrained. Whereas if you are, are in a relationship, then you have conversations and you have experiences together and you know, 
they can ask questions, you can ask questions. You can develop an understanding that is much deeper than it would be otherwise. So I think relationships are crucial to all of this. Whether that is a formula or not is another story, but it's but it's certainly a very important um, part of, of achieving this, whatever impact it might be. Uh, and it takes a long time.